Hi, my name is Michael Warren. I'd like to give you some background on one of my best friends. I call him my brother from another mother. Your host, Jed Hughes. Jed climbed up the football coaching ranks working for and alongside seven Hall of Fame coaches, including Chuck Knoll, Bud Grant, Tony Dungy, and Bo Schimbeckler, just to name a few. Now, I met Jed at my alma mater, UCLA, where I was an All-American basketball player and two-time captain for a couple of Coach John Wooden's championship teams. While Jed was a great defensive coordinator at UCLA recruiting a historic class, I was a cast member on the Emmy Honor television series, Hill Street Blues. Jed somehow creatively involved me in his recruiting pitch, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. After a great stint at UCLA, Jed worked in the NFL for the Minnesota Vikings, Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Cleveland Browns. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Jed holds a master's degree from the University of Stanford and a PhD from the University of Michigan and has led the sports consulting practice for two global executive search firms. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri, and four of the five power conference commissioners, along with many athletic directors and C-suite executives across the industry. I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes podcast. Through this podcast series, Jed will dive into what makes leaders, coaches, and executives great, and what separates the Hall of Famers from the rest. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Welcome to the Jed Hughes Podcast. My guest today, He's the first African-American to be the commissioner of a Power Five conference. He holds a law degree from Notre Dame, an MBA from Arizona State University, and that the Vikings helped build their organization into one of the elite businesses in professional sports. He engineered the building of U.S. Bank Stadium, their health and practice facility, along with initiating initiatives for diversity, both from a race and gender perspective. A leader in sports, Kevin Warren. Welcome, friends. Good afternoon, Commissioner Warren. Good afternoon. Jed, good to be with you today. Who would have ever predicted that your hardest job was not going to be replacing Jim Delaney? Instead, dealing with a pandemic, an economic collapse, and unprecedented racial unrest, not only in the Big Ten, but the nation. What an arena walk into. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been, uh, you know, interesting. It's, it's uh, really, and, and lately, I used to say it all the time, uh, how many days I had been on the job and and um, and then I stopped doing that recently because it seems like it's been in um, 
a warp, you know, warp speed and warp time. But it is, is, is interesting to think that I've only formally been on the job six months. And, um, but, you know, I was raised in a manner by my parents to always look for the positive nature and every day and every person. And then also to, to look for the opportunity. And I think that the greatest uh, gift that has come out of this pandemic is one, I've been able to spend a lot of quality time with my wife and two kids that I never thought we would have that time. But as far as a work standpoint, I have an opportunity to, to I've probably talked more in six weeks to our athletic directors and our coaches and, and even other A5 counterparts around the league that probably someone would do in a normal, um, probably five-year period, which anytime you communicate creates trust and transparency and allows you to build a relationship. So all in all, it's been incredibly positive. So how did you and Greta deal with the pandemic personally, not on a league level, but on a personal level? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. Once we um, canceled the uh, uh, men's basketball tournament, we left Indianapolis the next day and, and uh, came back to uh, Chicago and then we spent time there. I actually went into the office a couple of days after that. I, I, you know, we all thought, everyone thought that this would probably be a somewhere of you know two to three week scenario. So we stayed in in Chicago, and and uh, and then all of a sudden, when our apartment building, we were getting notices from them starting to limit our access and limit the number of people in the elevator and how many times you could go up and down. And then the the big thing because I, you know, just like you or or exercise is so important to me is uh, when I got the notice that our apartment building gym was going to be closing. And then I said, okay, this is serious, more serious than I knew it was serious, but from an operational and health standpoint that, that I had thought. And, and so I continued to go in to work for a couple of days. And then I, I took, well, it was one morning and I could tell that there were a few individuals, you know, who worked at the conference who were, coming in and I could tell that they were uncomfortable and somewhat pensive. And I just thought, you know, from a real leadership standpoint, for me to really uh, make sure that our employees knew, because at that point in time, and I'd only been there for, uh, what, two and a half months, is that I said, I, I need to show strong leadership. And I know that if I'm there at the office, there were going to be people that came in. And so I took the the strong stance and said, you know, we need to shut our office down. And that was really for the other employees to show that I not only could say what was the right thing to do, but I actually could do it. And I knew even if we shut the office down, if I didn't, you know, make it very clear I wasn't coming in, that they may feel pressure to try to come in. And so Greta and I returned uh, back to our home in uh, in Minnesota and then spent the foreseeable future there. Um, and I worked out of there uh, from Minnesota and, uh, you know, still still working around the clock, but I've been back and forth to Chicago on a few occasions. You being a black man working against all the statistics, you have really earned one of the most prestigious jobs in sports. Your journey with a life-threatening accident and you've overcome the challenges associated with racism. How have you done that? I mean, what, what are some of the skills and some of the things you've done to build credibility to help the people out there, they're looking at you as a role model. That's a great question, Jed. And I, I just think that what has helped me is one, back to my parents, you know, they raised seven kids. So I, I, have, I had a very interesting upbringing. I was born and raised in South Phoenix, you know, which is a 
uh, I don't say predominantly black, I'd say 100% black African-American enclave in Phoenix. And uh, probably in fifth grade, we moved to Tempe, which I went from an all black neighborhood, all black school. Uh, there were a few, few um, you know, white uh, people and, you know, you know, one or two uh, Hispanic people uh, at my elementary school. But then when I went to Tempe, then it was probably, I'd say it was, you know, 30 percent um, Hispanic, probably 50 uh, percent uh, white and 10 percent black. Uh, in my high school class, I went to Marco De, Marcos Deniza High School in Tempe, Arizona. So that was a big, you know, transition for for me. And um, but what helped me the most is my parents did an unbelievable job. And and you know, my grandmother on my mom's side, my maternal grandmother is actually um, from Mexico. She's from Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico, and was a maid, and who met my grandfather, who was a soldier at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. So they met, and. Um, and so my parents were, were, our house was like the United Nations and my maternal grandmother, on my dad's side had a lot of Choctaw Indian in her. So we were really an amalgamation of, of, of black, of, of Hispanic, and even of, of European uh, ancestry. But on the weekends, even though my grandmother, my maternal grandmother actually lived in the uh, projects in Phoenix. And my parents would, and I think now in retrospect, it was on purpose. They would drop me and my nephew off over in the projects um, who, who now he's a prominent lawyer in Chicago. And, you know, we could, we could speak uh, a, a little Spanish, but we weren't fluent at that age. And they would drop us off there. We learned how to play and, and, and spend time with people, even though we didn't speak the same language. We got, got my f- first serious for real fight there as a fourth grader. And, um, um, and so I think what they were saying to us and my grandmother, because she was living in the projects and was on food stamps, she would send us to, we didn't go to the grocery store. She went to, a, had a local food mart and she would send us over there with um, basically food stamps and we'd have to buy groceries for her. And she was, uh, had a very interesting way, only a second grade education, but was a math genius. I've seen her add up a column of numbers in her head, but she would send us over there. And because she was a math, math genius, I knew it was intentionally with probably about four or five dollars short of what she knew what the groceries would talk. And so she would send me over there. Now I'm like nine and my nephew seven. We're walking across uh, these dangerous park areas, crime ridden. And that was the first time we stuck. We got smart because we couldn't carry the groceries back. We would have to basically take these uh, uh, shopping carts that we would, you know, park them in a certain place that we could use them, re-return them. But we, she always had it where we ended up being about 2 or $3 short. And I think it was intentionally she did that. And I think it was bizarre that both my nephew and I ended up being lawyers because that really was the first time we had to negotiate. You know, and she would tell us, you know, if you don't bring everything back, I'm going to whip both of you all. She'd make us get the switches off the tree. Um, and, and we, you know, we after about two or three whippings, we, we figured it out. And so we would work it out and then we would work it out with the store owner and say, okay, can we, you know, do, do a little bit of chores around the store or can we negotiate this down? Or you find the can that maybe had a dent in it that you could get for half of the value of the beans that she wanted us to get, but we brought everything back. Uh, we developed, you know, the ability to think on our feet and, and be able to talk in front of people and especially adults. So I think, you know, back to your question of my parents, um, I think a lot of it was purposeful. They they never talked about they talked about race in our house. But they never blamed you know that um, uh, made it very clear they did not want to hear any excuses. 
And um, and I think my parents probably talked more about the Holocaust in our house than they did about slavery. And because um, and my dad was in World War II and had visited Auschwitz and went to Buchenwald camp and he would talk about man's, you know, in, inhumanity and we never could have that, you know, happen again. Very, very transparent, you know, with us and told us you cannot, you always have to stand on the, on the right side of treating people regardless of their race and background, but treating them with class and, and um, you know, that color should not matter. And, uh, and so because of that, I think I grew up in a manner where I never used my color, never even thought about it. As my parents would say, if you fell down off the monkey bars, and, you know, off a swing set, get up and, uh, and go do it again. I figure if I just keep knocking at the door and keep doing what I'm supposed to do and keep working hard and, and learning and growing, that ultimately, you know, uh, an opportunity to, to break through would occur probably 10 years later than it should, maybe if I look differently. But I never use that as an excuse. And I'm grateful to God that it happened when it happened with the people who it who it happened with. And I thank you for the role that you played into making it happen. So I'm glad to be here today. And I wouldn't want to be any other place in the world at this point in time in my life. So I'm grateful for that opportunity. You began in, in sports. So somehow your parents led you to sports and you had success. So talk a little bit about how the, the sports began and then how you just continue to elevate yourself from an educational perspective. Yeah, and, and as you alluded to, back to my accident, I, I knew at that accident that I, uh, there were two professions that jumped out at me who I ended up having the most time with during my accident. And number one were doctors, because um, I was in the hospital for many months, and then I had the body cast and all the checkups. And so I, and, and, and then lawyers, because we had a family lawyer who represented us who, uh, you know, filed the lawsuit against the family insurance company that I ended up getting the settlement and portion of the money I used to to build the pool in our in our backyard. So I, I really learned to admire those two professions because they, I felt both of them saved my life. The, the medical doctors and nurses saved my life uh, physically. And then the lawyers saved my life uh, from an emotional and financial standpoint. And so I made up my mind, even right after the accident, that I would either be a uh, doctor or a lawyer. And so I actually started down the journey. I was pre-med when I went to the University of P uh, Pennsylvania. So I started off pre-med and, um, you know, made it through biology and chemistry. And then as I started getting into a little bit more advanced courses, the, the issue that I ran into, and that's why I'm so passionate now for our student athletes to have the flexibility and the time and the encouragement to get meaningful degrees. but um, the issue I ran into is that basketball practice was exactly at the same time that my labs were. And I remember vividly, you know, I was uh, a uh, good student in high school. I always worked really hard and I did well. But to go from Tempe, Arizona, from a public school to the University of Pennsylvania uh, to an Ivy League school, and then to have classmates who had gone to Choate and Exeter and Phillips Academy and and the family had resources and private jets and ski chalets, and they traveled around the war world. And and um, and then I also, I didn't know I was younger. I went at 17. But when I went there, I remember vividly one day walking toward the palestra for practice and a group of my classmates who were, uh, you know, probably near perfect scores on their uh, SAT or ACT had gone to boarding schools who were well-read, who were incredible students. They were walking across Locust Walk. Toward the uh, science center, and I was walking toward practice, 
They said, where are you going? And I said, practice. And they, I said, where are you going? They said, we're going to the lab. And I, it was at that specific moment that I said, I'm going to need to focus on being a, a, a lawyer instead of a, a um, doctor because to, once I got into organic chemistry and all those different things, it just wouldn't be able to make it. But, but sports is so important to me because one, sports changed my life because it was my goal uh, to play Division I basketball. And, uh, and that's what allowed me to build a pool, to rehab, because that was the goal that I wanted to accomplish. So that got me to college. And then when I got to college, I wanted to make sure I did well and perform. And then I looked up and, you know, I was graduating. I had a meaningful degree. And even though I had an opportunity to play uh, in Europe, I had gotten to that point where I said, okay, I've gone as, probably as far as I can from an athletic standpoint. But, but then I was standing there and was ready to go to work in my Aaron said, you know, you, you need to go on to, to uh, grad school. So I went on and got my MBA at Arizona State. Then I had a sister who got sick, who ironically was living in South Bend, Indiana. And so I went there and said, might as well get my law degree. And that's how I ended up at Notre Dame Law School. So looked up over a nine-year period. I was able to get an undergrad, an MBA, and a law degree. But it was all started by me chasing the dream of being a Division One basketball player and, uh, you know, getting a chance to play college athletics. So how ironic is it that you go to work for Mike Slide? I know. <laughs> it's it's crazy. I mean, I, mean, I look back a little bit about what that was like. <laughs> yeah. In, I mean, it's just funny. Work. Yeah, it's funny. I mentor a lot of young people. I actually just sent an email to one right before uh, this call, who's now a uh, young guy. I started mentoring him his freshman year in high school. Now he's entering his second year in law school. And so I was just checking in with him. And I've told him on many occasions, I said, you know, what's crazy about my life. A lot of people call me and say, Hey, we want to f- follow your path. And I would say, I didn't have a path. It's just, I just, it just seems like there's been an angel, you know, with me who's been, you know, directing me. And so when you talk about, you know, Mike's life, um, you know, so you look, you know, I, I go to, I mean, the crazy part about it, I'm going to ASU, working on my MBA, getting ready to go to law school, sister gets sick, calls me, Kevin, I need you to come care for me and the kids. Uh, she was the sister who slept in the hospital with me for months when I was ill. So I said it was time for me to repay the favor. And so I went back to South Bend and, um, you know, graduate from there. And I was set to go home and work uh, for now the firm who's Greenberg Traurig, who I ended up working for to put the Vikings deal together. I was going back to work for O'Connor Cavanaugh had my job picked out, had my apartment picked out, you know, was, was going home. And then literally the, the Christmas before I graduated, I talked to an old lawyer friend, Bill Jones, uh, who had worked with Mike Slive on some investigations, who was an incredible human being. He was a prominent lawyer and ended up getting uh, ill and, and, and which caused him to, to basically live the rest of his life in a wheelchair, but a brilliant man and just a compassionate man. And I remember <laughs> talking with him about, Hey, graduation's coming up and you're looking forward to come back to the Valley. And, and I'd love to get to you. And he goes, you know what? You told me a couple of summers ago that you were interested in sports. And he goes, there's a guy in Chicago named Mike Slive. Uh, he's been in sports. Uh, he's now a lawyer. I work with him on a couple of cases. You should call him. And he goes, um, you know, he's, he doesn't hire associates. And I know you don't need a job, but be he, he'd be a good person to know. So I'm like, great. I got back to South Bend. I mean, this is after Christmas. I just have one semester to go, and then I'm done. I go back to South Bend. I call Mike. I talk to his admin, Sandra Biller, uh, who ended up working with her. 
and Mike calls me back and she gets back to me and her and Mike and says, Hey, we can meet you on Saturday, seven o'clock and uh, at a restaurant, you know, downtown in Chicago, he has 20 minutes cause he was in the middle of a couple of big investigations. She said, no big deal. So at my old uh, little Toyota Corolla with about 150,000 miles on it, I got up, I remember probably like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning and uh, cause drove to South Bend. I didn't want to be late and was there early and Mike came in and, and he was working on the case on Saturday and, and 20 minutes turned into an hour, which, which I, I, I could tell was longer than he had sure. planned. And, and after that, he just says, you know, something special about you and I'd love to stay in touch. And by the time I had gotten in my car, cause there was no cell phones, got back to my uh, apartment in South Bend, he had left a voicemail on it. So I want to offer you a job. You know, Mike was very direct. And uh, so I called him, told him I wanted to work with him. I was honored. He had never hired an associate. Um, called my firm and they said, Kevin, you know, we want you to come here, but so why don't we just defer your acceptance? I said, great. So I accepted the job with Mike, but then he calls me two weeks later and go, Kevin, I got a little different information. He goes, now we're not in Chicago anymore. I'm getting ready to merge with a firm in Overland Park, Kansas, because that's where the NCA's headquarters. And will that change your decision? Because we'll understand, you know, I said, Mike, I wasn't coming to work with you because you were in Chicago. I was coming to work with you for the opportunity he said, okay, great. We'll see you in Overland Park, Kansas. And so I moved there and I asked myself, what is this about? Well, I go to Overland Park, Kansas. That's where I meet my wife, Greta. And I was thinking if I hit either state, if, you know, when you trace it all back, if I don't go to South Bend to care for my sister, you know, I don't see Bill Jones and then I don't have a chance to meet Mike. And then if I don't go to accept a job with Mike, I don't go to you know, Overland Park and I don't meet Greta. So all these little twists and turns, and but to work with him, and I think that's one of the reasons why I pour into so many young people because Mike did things for me that he didn't, he did not have to do. I mean, he would take me on trips with him to do interview witnesses and uh, he would take me in the homes of some of these witnesses. He actually took me to a committee on infractions uh, meeting he and Mike Glazier at the uh, Broadmoor. And, uh, and he just told me, I remember him like it was yesterday at the, breakfast meeting, he looked at me and he said, all I need you to do is listen to everything, you know, watch everything, take um, incredible notes, but just, I want you to watch everything, body language, you know, voice inflection. And that's when I really learned the importance of details. So for Mike's live to do what he did for me, I think that's one of the reasons why I've always tried to pay it forward and backwards and sideways to these young people just to give them an experience. And, and then, and uh, so I've stayed in contact to, to, to this day with his wife, Liz and daughter, Anna. And um, so Mike, Mike was, he truly is a mensch. He really got me on the trajectory of understanding what this um, whole notion of college athletics is, is really about. And then again, in terms of your selflessness, you go back to Notre Dame as a counselor, you then yeah. begin your own agency, re, re, uh, representing players there and so yeah. forth. So talk a little bit about that, and then we get into the Lions and the Rams and contract with Red. Yeah, so so you know Notre Dame was interesting. I, I go back to to Notre Dame. I had a professor. My, my my entire life has built been built on relationships. I was thinking about it the other day. You know, the only job that I've actually ever replaced someone in my thirty year career was the Big Ten. Every other job I had taken was created. So Mike created it, Notre Dame created it, all the law firms created it. But uh, I got a call from an old professor, Patricia O'Hara, who taught me securities and 
corporate um, uh, corporations and, and, and corporate finance and in law school. And, and uh, she had just become the new uh, vice president of student affairs. And she said, oh, please come back, come teach a sports law class in law school and help me. And so I was assistant vice president of student affairs and, and learned about administration and kind of like, even at the time I was asking myself and a lot of other people like, what, what are you doing working on a college campus? But that was just the, the, uh, the good Lord kind of preparing, you know, me for understanding the mindsets of provosts and chancellors and presidents and how academics fits with sports. So I got a chance to spend time there. And it was during that, that uh, one of the student athletes there actually introduced me to a young man, Chris Zorich. I hadn't known Chris as a player, but you know, his mom had passed and he didn't have a father. And and, and this person said, Chris really needs some help. And so I started helping him. You know, I uh, started my, I was getting married to Greta at the time and went to, to, uh, I'd gone to Kansas City, met her, but then I'd gone back to Notre Dame. But then it was a perfect time for me to move back to Kansas City and get married. And uh, start my own sports agency. I live, so I literally started with one client, Chris Zorge, and uh, and just built it up from then. Grew much, much faster than I had thought. It was a little bizarre because I was only like two years older than most of my clients. But um, you know, had to be mature. And then, you know, you think about it. First client was Chris Zorge. Second client was Will Shields, who was an offensive guard from Nebraska, who's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, who drafted and got drafted in the third round. But he came to Kansas City, so. All 32 teams he could go to, he comes to Kansas City, which is where I was living, which allowed me to over-service over him. And then my third client was Lake Dawson, wide receiver from, from uh, Notre Dame. And then kind of the rest went there. And I started getting into writers and broadcasters and entertainers. And, and it just grew so fast. So after about five years, I had a decision to make. Either I was going to stay in that business and grow um, uh, or I was going to go follow my true love. And that would be to work in the in the front office and in, in professional sports. Yeah, and then the, unfortunately, the Lions is like a coffee stop. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. then you get to join join John Shaw and they they yeah. show on turf and win a Super Bowl. But you had an unusual situation where I think you had a a player that was in a major accident. You had a counsel. Yeah, it was crazy at the Rams. Leonard Little, great pass rusher from the University. Of Tennessee and Knoxville and had never drank and goes out on his birthday's rookie year, October 19th. Remember like it was yesterday and goes downtown in St. Louis and goes out uh, with some teammates and other friends and, um, and, and ends up, you know, getting in a car accident downtown. I'm at the office still. It's probably like 1130 at night. And cause I, you know, my other second mentor who, who saved my life and really helped grow as Dick Vermeil. So I had just was in Coach Vermeil's office because I would do all of the legal work and stuff during the day. And then because I was commuting and living at a hotel and Greta and the kids were back in Kansas City, I would just stay to the wee hours. And he taught me how to watch tape and evaluate players. And it was a late night. We were, maybe even, I think it was after midnight. And I'd get a call and uh, that uh, there had been an accident. So I'd jump in my car out at Earth City and speed downtown and go right up on the scene and uh it was it was uh very traumatic that i had to go back to the to actually the the uh, lot where uh leonard's car had been towed and climb in there through all the glass and airbags and get you know, all of his keys and things and then actually took him home and so I, there are certain things you remember in your life the drive that drive with a young man in his early 20s 
had grown up in tough environment, had recognized his dream, was a great player. And then I had to call his mom at like 2.30 in the morning. And I, I remember that phone call. It was painful to talk to Mrs. Little and tell her what had happened. Um, and um, and then I had to just be there with Leonard to, just to be there for him and, and just to pray with him and, and cry with him and to be there you know, for him. And so that was, that was one of those experiences that, that, uh, we'll never, you know, we'll never forget. And then for us to be able to continually grow at the Rams and build a family or organization and go from, go four and 12, five and 11 and 16 and three and win a Super Bowl and with all those hall of famers and, and, um, and continually grow and, and, you know, went back home to work. Ironically, the firm that I had mentioned to you that I called and told him I was going to work with Slive, you know, that was, uh, in 90 when I got out of law school then I call him back in in 2003 and tell him I was ready to finally accept my offer and the managing partner had still been there and he chuckled he said I'm glad you're a man of your word he said even though it took you 13 years to come and work with us and so I went back and worked at Greenberg Traurig which you know which uh, which I was there when we worked on buying the Vikings so how did that play out? I got a, a random call. Like I said, my whole life has been a comment. Probably my life story would be just kind of, you know, random acts and, and an angel, you know, that it just, it happened. I literally got a random call from Denny Green. Uh, God rest his soul. Great former coach who had worked at the Vikings and been in Stanford and in the league and, and who you work with. And uh, so Denny called me and said, hey, he was he was getting ready to he was interviewing for the Cardinals job. And he called me. He said, hey, you know, the Vikings are for sale. I said, Vikings are for sale. What, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, Mr. McCombs will sell the team. And uh, and he said, you're living out here in Phoenix now. So, yeah, I'm back working at a firm. He said, what are you doing next Saturday? You know, how Denny was. I said, nothing. Greg and I are going to see the Sacramento Kings play. And uh, he said, OK, after the game, meet me at the Phoenician in the lobby. Um, and, uh, I got a few people I want to introduce you to, and let's kind of talk about, you know, the Vikings. I said, sure. So go to the game. And, uh, I lived somewhat near, uh, the Phoenician dropped Greta off at home. And I went back I said, Greta, I don't, I know coach green's going to be there, but I don't know these other people. If I'm not home by like two o'clock in the morning, come look for me. So I go to Phoenician, I walk in this room in typical Denny fashion, you know, which makes me laugh. There was not a couple of people. There was like 50 people in this, in this room. And that was a room group of people in Phoenix who wanted to put together a group to buy the Vikings. The other thing coach green forgot to tell me is that he had told them that I was going to be making a presentation to them about the, about the process of buying the NFL team. So I went in there and he says, like you said, a couple people, he goes, yes, there's like 50 people in here, ah, a couple. And he said, you know, thanks for coming. He goes, I'm glad you're here. You know, Kevin Warren, who, just won a Super Bowl with the Rams and back home here, six years in the league. He's, he's going to give us a presentation on walk us through what we need to do to buy the team. I'm like, okay. So I got up and, and, uh, and, and just walked people through it. Uh, we probably got out of there about three o'clock in the morning. And it was April 9th of, uh, of uh, 2004 and um, went home and then on Monday, I got a call that Monday morning from from Reggie Fowler, who was a local businessman in Phoenix, African-American, and said, hey, I happen to be at the meeting and heard your name, but don't know you. And when you helped me uh, put together a group to buy the Vikings. And so I started working with him that um, that next day and then had a chance to meet with, you know, Gavin and Joe Maloof, the Maloof brothers and 
and just started working with one of my uh, friends, Jim Stapleton. And uh, um, I called him and said, hey, I got a unique opportunity. You know, any people who may want to put money in the deal. And he said, I got a roommate at, uh, who we went to Michigan, Ray Owens, uh, who has some people out of New York. Uh, Alan Landis, real estate people who he knows who may be interested in sports. And so I'm like, great. So he, Jim gave me the number. I called the Landises. They said, we can meet with you. I took a red eye to, to New York and walked in there and gave a presentation in front of the, and they invited, they said, we're going to invite two more families. And it was the Mandelbaum family and the Wolf family. So I gave a presentation and uh, probably about an hour, uh, just like I talked to whole time they peppered me with questions they went in a room they came back 15 minutes later said we're in for a hundred million dollars and I was like wow uh, this is this is adult football now and so we started working through it I walked Reggie through it I went down to uh, San Antonio basically spent weeks there with with Mr. McCombs and negotiated the deal and then at the end of the deal when when Reggie wasn't able to satisfy the deal financially um that's when Ziggy Wolf stepped up to become general partner. Reggie at the time became a limited partner. He has now since sold all of his ownership in the Vikings and worked on it from uh, from April of, 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 of basically 2004 was our first meeting with Denny Green and we closed in um, in June of 2005. So it was it was a an absolute 14 month grind. And then when the deal closed, we went over to Scadden Arps in New York and signed all the paperwork and had a closing dinner at the St. Regis and I hugged Ziggy and Mark and Lenny and thanked them for everything. And so this was a heck of a you know, journey. I'll still be a Greenberg truck. If any other projects come up, I'd love to you know, help them. And, and they said, well, where are you going? I said, well, I got a flight tomorrow morning to Phoenix. And they said, well, what happens now? And I said, well, what do you mean? What happens now? You bought the team, you wired the money and you show up on Monday and meet with the employees and tell them what's going on. They're like, well, can you meet us there? And uh, I said, I haven't been home in two weeks. So I flew home, flew back, met them in Minnesota. Um, and then they just said, can you help us a little bit? I said, sure. And so one day turned out and turned into 15 years, 15 years later, turned in there. Um, so spent agreed to spend the day with them. And then they asked for a week and then a kind of month. And then we looked up and, and I was there from, from uh, basically, I was there from 2005 to September of 20. 19 until I showed up at the Big Ten. So it turned out to be a wonderful experience. Um, they become family. And um, we were able to raise our kids there. When we moved there, our daughter Perry was a third grader going to third grade. Powers was going to the first grade. And, and uh, I got a chance to recognize some unbelievable, you know, dreams and, and to work in the NFL and to be in the same place for 15 seasons um, was truly, truly truly a blessing and then to look back over my career to have had a chance to spend 21 seasons in the nfl and do some incredible stuff of construction and just building businesses i'm just i'm, I'm, I'm feeling incredibly blessed every single day you also had a uh, an event that uh, regarding adrian peterson that yeah. where he was involved with uh, whipping his child uh, and the organization was struggling with how to present their front to the media and so forth. And you became at that point, someone that they thought would be very helpful in terms of the image of the Vikings and really kind of thrust you in a much more senior type of role, if that's characterized correctly. 
Yeah, no, that, that's that's correct. I mean, I was there, and I don't say just because I don't I don't like that word just because it's limiting. But so I always say for me, I was in the role of being a lawyer and a, and a consigliere to the family until all the time I was probably like Tom Hagen, you know, and the Godfather just to uh, right. work with the Will family, uh, you know, as a lawyer. But you know that that was that was a very public situation. It was complicated. Uh, not only for Adrian, but for the team and our fan base and being in Minnesota. And, and there was no roadmap. It was very similar to the issues we're dealing with now. There was no, there was not a person I could call on the face of the earth and say, hey, tell me, like, when this happened to you all, tell me how you handled it. It hadn't happened. And um, and I just have the utmost respect for for Adrian. We had some hard decisions that make that, that time ownership was really relying on me. There was no roadmap. And then it was so good just, just this past uh, Super Bowl in Miami when we went to NFL honors Greta was there uh, with me we walked we're walking out and we saw um, you know Adrian and uh, his family and I got a chance to we, we had stayed in cluster over the year but there was there was you know always you could tell that there was a sense of uh, a little stress and strain but we got a chance to to be able to uh, coming out of honors to to talk uh, with each other and to tell each other how we really felt and how much we respected. I have the utmost respect for him, not only as a player, but as a person. And uh, it was an honor to work, you know, with him. And it's one of those ones that at the end of the day, I think we all would have done things the same way. It was complicated. We did the best, you know, we could, which I've learned over time. Most of the time, that's probably why I'm so unjudgmental is, uh, is most of the time people do the best that they possibly can do you know, based upon the resources and understanding that they have. So it was good to embrace him, spend some time together. And then and, and I look forward to, you know, just continually growing and, and learning. But but I had a wonderful time in Minnesota and I, I, I love the people in Minnesota. They were great to my uh, family and to, and to me. And, and I will always just have a special place for uh, the Will family because I've said it all along. It's one thing to give, especially when you talked about race at the top of the call. It's a lot of times it's okay to give a, a black man an opportunity to 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 coach and to be a general manager or scout which is really important but uh for the will family to trust me with they with their multi-billion dollar kind of enterprise is uh is powerful and so because of that i will forever be uh uh, uh, uh honored to call them friend and to uh and to continually work work hard uh I work hard with them and and and, and for them, so I'm, I'm forever grateful. Well, you left a legacy, though. A stadium, you know, they came in on budget. You know, a health complex, diversity right. initiatives that you uh, that you put through philanthropy kinds of things. I mean, your impact in the community was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, my man, it goes back to my parents. You know. And I tell 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 the story, and, and I will uh, do everything I can not to get emotional uh, now. But you know, my my uh, mom was a librarian. She didn't. My mom didn't go back to work until she was forty one. She was actually, you know, certifiable, you know, genius level, brilliant woman. But you know, it had a lot of pain in her life because my grandmother, who was the one that was from uh, Minnesota, I mean, from uh, Mexico. Uh, the, my my grandfather left home when my mom was in eighth grade. I would never seen it, saw him again. So they fell upon hard times. Actually lived in a tent for a whole year, um, and just worked as a kind of sharecropper. So my mom was a very bright woman, but always you could tell had a lot of kind of pain in her, you know, in her heart. But um, 
she she went back to work. She had me at 40, uh, went back to work at 41. And um, and then uh, she started with a, a book scholarship that was that was uh, that was really, uh, you know, amazing. And um, and and I even used to be somewhat judgmental as a kid. It was it was it was twenty five. Uh, um, it was twenty five dollar book scholarship. And as a little boy, I would say, what what, what is it? What is twenty five dollar? Really? Does that does that really matter? And um, and at her funeral, almost some um, 50 years, 40 years later, a couple of the students there um, who, who had gotten this book scholarship came to her funeral and came up to me, and just thanked me and told me how much it would be that that $25 was the reason that they were able to uh, afford books or that caused them to to go to on the junior college and the college. And now they were you know, they were teachers, they were professors, they were firefighters, they were police officers, they were whole litany of things. And that's where I really, I think I learned the empower, the importance of just the power of one, just, just one person can make a change. And even $1 can make a change. And to watch my mom do that, especially for a woman who didn't come from extreme financial resources, but to really love on those students and then tell them the $25 was more than the money. It was just basically a signal encourage them and tell them that they were special and uh and i think that's what has caused you know caused me to, to to do the things that we have done and then to work hard and, and and the stadium and and i just recognized that we had to be early um back to the color you know i just have the i wanted to especially as a black man in my position i said we got to be early we got to have this thing open we, we opened the door six weeks early which never happens in a project that was the largest still is um construction project in the history of the state of Minnesota over 1.1 billion dollars and we need to be under budget so I was proud that we were early and uh and we were we were under budget and um and and I, I just knew that that our names everyone who worked on that and I served a lot of people who were so critical on that but our names would be be on that for forever so I got a chance to work on some great projects help the community and uh, do a lot of great things and and truly leave a legacy in the in the Twin Cities. Why college sports? We, we know your dad is in the Hall of Fame. Arizona State is the first black man to uh, run a bowl game, Fiesta Bowl. Big Ten, you're in professional sports. Why join college sports and, and take on this role? You know, that's a wonderful question. Actually, one of our Big Ten basketball coaches asked me that same question huh. in the last couple of days. And, uh, and I'll tell you what I told him. I said, even though I, I, I had the best job in all of professional sports, my job at the Vikings, as chief operating officer with ownership who had been together, who we had made an extraordinary amount of money together. We had built a legacy. We had built an incredible stadium. We had done a whole practice facility complex. Um, we had done so much, you know, together. They lived in, in New York and New Jersey and in between Minnesota. I had great autonomy. I loved the Twin Cities. The kids were raised there. We, you know, we were a winning franchise. Everything was new. So I had feel like I had the best job in professional sports. Um, but I didn't have the, uh, it, it was a job. And the w- thing that, that was unique about the Big Ten, it provided the potential for a movement. And so, so many people in their lives are, are, are working jobs, which is great. And, you know, some, some of them are, you know, really good jobs, but I'd reached that time in the Vikings where I didn't have to work anymore. 
that I was looking for an opportunity that was a movement, that was a platform. Um, and so instead of me being able to impact 60 to, seven, uh, 60 to 70 of our players at the Vikings, the Big Ten afforded me an opportunity to impact almost 10,000 student athletes. And so when you think about a job at the Vikings that was in one state with 60 to 70 athletes um, in one location and one of 32 teams, then to go to an opportunity that was in 11 states, across 11 states from Nebraska to New Jersey, 10,000 student athletes, and all of the brands that we have in the Big Ten, just the history of all of those 14 institutions from a research standpoint and just impact around the world over 6 million living alumni. I just looked at it that it wasn't, it wasn't a job, wasn't, I didn't need a job, but to have an opportunity to come work with really, really smart people. Our chancellors and presidents are, are brilliant scholars. And then the people at the big 10 office and then coaches and with all the complex issues, it was one of those, there's probably only two or three opportunities like that in the world uh, that, that would afford me a chance to really be able to, all of my skill set that I had had that I've developed over my life, put them into place, but then also to be able to lead with my heart, lead with empathy, and 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 pull people together, galvanize people to change the world. So, I haven't worked a day since I've been at the Big Ten. Spent a lot of time working on Big Ten issues, but I haven't worked a day since I walked in the door last September 16th. You first joined the Big Ten before you took over. You were visiting campuses and so forth, and you spent time lifting weights and doing things with student athletes. An incredible opportunity, which they probably hadn't seen before. Yeah, it's uh, my wife Greta, who you know you've met other people have met. Who she's a real rock in our family. She's you know brilliant. Um, can can run run our business. You know knows everything in and out. And um, but I told her one one day. And she has no problem. She has no filter on how she talks, you know, to me and gives me advice. But I told her, I said, I, I, I want to see every Big Ten team uh, play um, in 2020. And I, I told that running in by her, expecting her to say, what the, you're, you're crazy. And um, and she said, you know what? I think that's a great idea. And I'd love to go with you. And I was like, wow. So we had already... I had already uh, seen, I think, 105 out of 350 teams play in two and a half months. So up until the, when the pandemic hit. And the reason why it was important for me to, to do it is that to have a chance and go see a water polo match in, in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan or go to a synchronized swimming match at Ohio State and pistol shooting and just, you know, all those different things. Uh, we're, we're really powerful. One, it sent the message that every one of our student athletes in the Big Ten is important to me. Two, I wanted to see uh, their world through their eyes, you know, how they see it, and get a, get a sense and a reiterate at the point that we have incredibly bright uh, student athletes. They're hardworking, they're smart, they're passionate, they have empathy, they have grace, they have class, um, and they're leaders. So I, I was right on target to be able to do it, and we had three town hall meetings, uh, Iowa, uh, Minnesota and Indiana. So to really be able to get on those schools. And, and, and as you know, Jed, I am so passionate about just relationships and getting the chance. You know, it's one thing for me to pick up a magazine and read about, about Bloomington, Indiana, and, uh, you know, just read, read about the history and the tradition and the schools and all that. Then it's a total, another thing to be able to go there and stay on campus and walk into Assembly Hall and 
and and and feel it, feel what what a game means, and talk to student athletes, and you know, walk through classes, and spend time with administration, and and um, and so I'm a big believer that that uh, the way I've lived my entire career, and I won't change, is is just having a relationship that you can touch and feel, and 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 have a tangible, transparent, honest relationship. You learn so much, and uh, student athletes and coaches, and even administrators so grateful to me ask telling me thank you and I was telling them I'm the one thanking you all and just to for you to be able to welcome me here so it's my my incredible honor to be able to serve this conference you institute a mental health cabinet obviously is something that's important to you in terms of having a son as a student athlete and understanding mm-hmm. the pressures that are sometimes over that are overlooked as it relates to the how individuals deal with anxiety and how they process it. I tell so many times, I tell people my life is like a generator. Is that, you know, how you see a generator and you see a bunch of cords that are plugged into it. Is that all of my actions now, you can trace it back to the generator. And the reason why mental health and wellness is so important to me is one, having a daughter who was a student athlete and I have a son who's a current student athlete in Mississippi State. And then it goes back to my accident when I was 10 and a half years old, got hit by the car and in the hospital and having night terrors and, and just uh, struggling mentally. And not one time during that process, we had great doctors, but not one time during that process did anyone come and have a counselor or a psychologist or psychiatrist talk with me. And the sister who I went to care for at Notre Dame, um, she stayed in the hospital with me part of the time because I was just struggling you know, mentally. I was in pain, physical pain, emotional pain, scared. Was I going to walk again? Was I going to die? And that's why she stayed in the hospital, you know, with me. And so as I look back, it would have helped so much if I would have been able to just to talk through these issues. And I think over time, I just rewired my brain and kind of figured it out and used all the pain and the trauma to, you know, to be the jet fuel to me. But it's, it's not healthy the way that I, I I worked it out. And so I just thought by us forming our, you know, mental health cabinet and and being able to talk about it with the student athletes and provide resources. We provided the calm app to every one of our student athletes in the, in the big 10, just trying to make sure that we are doing everything that we're, we possibly can do to take care of our student athletes. And just not, this is not a PR stunt at all. This is just a great opportunity for us to share with them how much we care about them and to make sure that they're, you know, healthy from a, uh, from a mental health standpoint. So a little over a month ago, your former city, a real tragedy occurred. George Floyd was murdered. It unleashed the pent-up racism that's been existing in the United States. And one understand how you've approached that from your position, how you've advised coaches, staff, other people. I mean, you being a black man, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a white person. I've never walked in your steps, never felt some of the things you felt. So trying to understand how you've been able to take all this turmoil and be able to institute thoughts and suggestions that can be changing our environment. That's a great question. Again, back to my parents. It's just, you know, my parents always say, just, you gotta, you know, figure out, you gotta, Kevin, you're gonna gonna get uh, delivered a lot of sour lemons in your life. And you gotta figure out how to make the best lemonade and uh, and and all those sad and Mr. Floyd, you know, losing his life and, and other people have lost their life. 
Um, but instead of focusing on all the negative things that are happening, I've said it so many times, this is the most encouraged that I've been um, in my life as a black man. Because I feel for once now that a lot of the things that we would talk about on our, in our, around our dinner table or with our friends and family, never complain about it, but just to talk about it in our churches is that now we're, we're um, finally at the point where we can discuss these issues collectively, where people say, we got, we got some issues. I don't call them problems. I, I more so say we've got some opportunities here that we can come together. And uh, so instead of me ha- having these conversations with my family or friends, um, is that I can have these conversations now. It's, it's available for us to be able to talk about it. And I think people are starting to understand, you know, what we all have have gone through. I mean, things that, you know, me talking to my son about driving and dealing with the police officers. And I respect police officers so much. They have an incredibly tough job. The things we have gone through, it's not only just in police officers in the community, just in business, you know, and in life. And that's why I said I'm grateful to you for for, you know, providing me with an opportunity. I'm grateful for the chancellors and presidents to hire me. And, 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 and I was just, you know, just encouraged to keep doing what you're doing. I tell my, my son all the time, just use it as, as, uh, I just try to use it as, as, as fuel. And, and I, I just told myself, I'm not going to get discouraged, but the good thing about it, the, 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 uh, the obstacles based upon race that I've had to deal with in my career really has been helpful to me because it's made me to be just uber prepared just to make sure every single day that I went to the office that I, you know, had read everything, I had thought about everything, I prepared everything, uh, was overly prepared and, and to stay ready because it wasn't if, it was when the opportunity came, I needed to be ready to, to go. But when you do that over a 30-year career, you become pretty, you know, pretty skilled in your profession. So instead of me looking at the obstacles and complaining about what I didn't get a chance to get, or when people come to me and say, Oh, you should have been a president of the NFL club 15 years ago. I said, yeah, but maybe I wouldn't be here at the big 10. So I'm just grateful about all the challenges that I faced. It made me a better person. It's made me tougher. It's made me more creative. A lot of doors have been slammed in my face for no reason, but then sometimes you got to climb through a window. And um, so I'm, I'm just honored. And I think for once, we have come together as a people, black and white, to come together. This is an inflection point to say we can sit here and complain and whine and, and grouse over some of these issues, or we can come together and take tangible steps. And I know that's what we're doing at the Big Ten by you know forming our anti-hate and anti-racism coalition and working on voter registration and voter suppression. So I feel honored and blessed that, that, that we're in an opportunity to be able to work together and, and help change the world. And I told our Big Ten student-athletes who are on the committee, I am. I feel it in my spirit that one of these Big Ten student athletes is going to go on to become the uh, president of the United States. And uh, so I'm just honored to serve. Kevin, you couple intellect with a way to connect with stakeholders on every level, including race and gender. I feel you're an inspiration to the next generation of leaders excited to watch you lead and take the Big Ten to the next level. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time and being my guest today. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. And again, just thank you for everything that you uh, have done for me and, and my uh, family, uh, always encouraging me. And and I remember along one of our journeys, uh, I told you, I said, I think, you know, one day you'll have that job for me that fits uh, fits me. 
And uh, I think you were right and I was right too. So thank you for everything that you've done. I appreciate what you're doing. And I know the impact that you've had uh, in sports. And it's been an honor to serve the Big Ten. And I appreciate everything you've done. Thank you.